Yesterday morning, Brian called me and said he isn't going to be able to be here. He's having a pretty much immobile yesterday with his neck problems. So pray for that as he uh, gets attention, medical attention for that. And hopefully this will be a short-term thing. But uh, so I was thinking about what I would preach today. Normally, I don't preach uh, messages dedicated to holidays, except for Christmas and uh, Resurrection morning. Uh, other than that, uh, I just continue on the series I'm doing, but I'm not doing a series right now. And so I thought, well, what could I, what could I go to this morning? Uh, it's Mother's Day, so I thought uh, I could look at that issue with you today. And we're going to turn to 1 Samuel to do so. As I think of one of the greatest mothers described in all of Scripture is uh, found in this passage we'll look at, Hannah. As we look at this book, let me give you a little backdrop. Uh, the, we date the foundation of our country, let's go with that first of all, from the early 1600s and so forth for the most part when the pilgrims uh, came over to Plymouth Rock, uh, flee, and, uh, and then uh, later the colonizations by Spain and England and, and France and ultimately England won out on that. But most of us date America to the Revolutionary War in, uh, the, in 1776. And that because that began a new era in our on this continent with the uh, what we would call United States of America. Uh, we look back at the founding fathers of that particular movement, and most of us could quickly pop out names like George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and a few others. But we can draw a parallel with that uh, of, a, of the founding of America uh, with uh, what we're looking at today with Israel. Israel has actually been in existence here for about 400 years. So this is not the beginning of Israel by any means, but there is a new era coming. We're in transition here. We're transitioning from the uh, theocracy to a monarchy. The theocracy is the rule of God. God has ruled over the people of Israel since, the, since Moses right on up to this time. And now we're transitioning to a monarchy in which there will be kings, first Saul and then David and Solomon and so forth. So we're in that transitional period right here at this particular time. Uh, developing a king, go to chapter 8 for a moment. Uh, as we think about a king taking becoming a leader over Israel, this is not something God did not anticipate. As a matter of fact, in uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17, the Lord set up, uh, parameters for a king over Israel. But the problem here is that as we come to chapter 8 and verse 7, we find they, the people of Israel want a king for the wrong reasons. In verse 7 it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So there, this whole setting up of the monarchy at this point is a rejection of God, and turn into a human king. It gets worse, though, as we drop over to verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. Samuel didn't want them to do this. They refused to listen to him. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. That was their motivation. They weren't content to be the unique people of God that God had set them out to be, uh, led only by God himself and those that he would appoint. But now they want a man, a leader, a king, like everybody else has. And so we see we're in a difficult time here, a dark time for the nation of Israel. First Samuel, if you want to read it sometime soon, uh, is a story of the early days of the monarchy, 
it, both its benefits and its uh, problems that go along with it. It's a big book, a lot of stories, a lot of stories you would know if I would go into them with you. But it's wrapped around three individuals. Uh, it's wrapped around Samuel and Saul and David. Uh, there is a sense then these are the founding fathers of uh, the monarchy of Israel. We're going to look at Samuel only today and in his early years, not even much about Samuel, but pieces. And as we do that, I, I want to give you some more tidbits here about this book. Originally, First and Second Samuel was one book, and it was only called Samuel. But uh, when the Greek uh, uh, translators, with the Septuagint, uh, translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, uh, the, the scrolls weren't big enough <laughs> to cover, to co take care of both. It was just too heavy, too much. So they divided it into two different books, First and Second Samuel. Two more interesting facts. There's two names found in, uh, in the text that we'll look at today, some of the verses, that have gone down through uh, our English literature. Uh, one name is Ichabog. You might remember him from... Uh, uh, not from the Bible, probably, most of you, but from Washington Irving's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And uh, you might remember Ichabod Crane, but it, meant, it means the glory of the Lord has departed. And the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel, and that name was given to a, chi to a child, actually, who would be symbolic of what has happened to Israel. And the other name is Ebenezer. And when you think about Ebenezer, everybody thinks about Ebenezer Scrooge. And uh, yet there's a great song that we have sung over the years for many, many, many decades called Here I, uh, it's called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, one of the great hymns of the faith. The third stanza of that verse says, Here I lift my Ebenezer. And I was just looking in a couple hymnals this morning and discovered that old verse has been expunged from our hymnals, uh, even the best hymnals, including the one we use and the one that masters uh, college and seminary and school and Grace Church out there has put together, they've gotten rid of that, that whole verse. It's not even there anymore. And that's probably because most of you don't know what Ebenezer is. You're not ready to lift up Ebenezer Scrooge, so, so what are you going to do with that? Well, if you don't know what that means, uh, hang on, I'll tell you a little later. But these are two names that, that come out at, uh, in this book. We're going to go back to chapter 1 and look at the early days of Samuel, and it starts with the fact that, uh, of a, that Samuel and Eli are two judges or leaders over Israel at this time. Eli is the last of the judges, and he's also a high priest. To our knowledge, only, only Eli was both a high priest and a judge. He would judge for 40 years, and then Samuel is going to judge for 20 years uh, before Saw, uh, the monarchy is set up with Saul. So it's a 60-year uh, slice of time here. Uh, when the book opens, we find a man named Elkanah, Elkanah in verse 1, and he has two wives. One of them, named Hannah, cannot have any children. And we pick this story up in, in verse 3. Now this man would go up from the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli... Hopni and Phinehas were priests to the Lord there. And so we pick up some names here at this point, and we pick up a family that goes down to worship the Lord at the yearly feast that they would attend each year. We, we get a little background, though, with Eli and his sons here. And, and verse, if we go over to chapter 2, verse 12, we find that the sons of Eli were worthless men and did not know the Lord. So these are the, these are the priests. 
Eli's the high priest. His sons really ran the show, and they were worthless men, godless men. How bad were they? Well, we go over to verse 29 of chapter 2, and we see that it says, uh, uh, Eli confronts them finally, and he says, Why do you kick against my, sac my sacrifice and my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling? This is God speaking here to Eli, actually. And why do you honor your sons above me by making yourself fat with the choices, uh, the, uh, choices of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say, Your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me I will lightly esteem. And so Eli and his sons are going to miss out on being the high priests because of their godlessness. As far as we know, Eli wasn't a really ungodly man at per such, but he was a very weak man. And he allowed his own sons to continue in their dishonesty and their sinfulness. And so God is very displeased with them. They're going to be replaced. And they're going to be replaced, first of all, with Samuel. But right now, Samuel is just a little boy. We go back to chapter 1 again. He's not even a little boy yet. He's not born yet. And so we have to start with that. His birth is a result of the prayer of his mother, Hannah. In verse 10, she is greatly distressed. She could not have children. And she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Now she's at Shiloh at the tabernacle. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look uh, on, my, on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, that I will give him, him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. So she makes a deal with the Lord, so to speak. She asks the Lord to give her a son, and she would dedicate him to the Lord. In verse 20, we find these words, And it came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. And so I'm leaving out a lot of the story, but the Lord does answer her prayer, and she has a little boy that she names Samuel. We go over a little further in this story, and uh, look at chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your, this is later after, after Samuel was probably three years old, maybe four, maybe five. We don't know. He's, he's young. He's very young. She said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition when I ask of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. So she brings her son to uh, the tabernacle, to Eli, and she dedicates him to the Lord, and she leaves him with Eli, and she goes back home. She keeps her promise to the Lord at this time. As we think about this, I'm going to say something, and I'll, go, and I'll back up and say it again, but I think if we're looking at Samuel, we're looking at a man who's absolutely unique. There's nobody like him for the last 300 years. We have to go all the way back to Joshua to find a man like Samuel. Samuel is a man's man. We just had a Bible conference, a uh, men's conference on the um, uh, biblical ma masculinity. What is a man? Well, a man is not necessarily one who can throw a football 50 yards. He's not necessarily somebody that can hunt and fish. A man is described in Scripture in a very different way, a godly man. And there's nobody that fits the description in Scripture much like Samuel. What a man he is. What makes a man like this? And, and I think these first two chapters that we have in this book are not just background filler. 
that the Holy Spirit decides to give us to have a good story. He is telling us something about Samuel. He's saying you, you'll never understand Samuel until you understand his family, until you understand his, his parents, until you understand perhaps especially his mother. You're never going to understand why he became what he became without taking a good look at who, at who raised him, who his family was. Let's take a little closer look at Hannah in chapter 2. What kind of person was she? She has a song. Hannah has one number one hit, and this is it. And she, she sings her song, and it's like a prayer. Most of the songs of Scripture uh, would be dual purpose, uh, songs and prayers. You see that in the Psalms over and over. They're both prayers and songs. But she, Let me read a piece of this to you. Verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. I want to stop there to bring this out. She is taking her little boy to dedicate him to the Lord and to leave him with Eli, who is not exactly the person I would leave my kid with. She's raised two godless boys, and he is not a man of great godliness himself. And the nation of Israel is in a spiritual mess, as we'll see a little further on. But he, she's going to do that because she has promised it to the Lord, and she trusts in her Lord. But keep in mind, she's not just a stoic uh, individual who can say, well, I'll just give them to the Lord and go home. She's a mother. Think about that, moms. Think about raising that little kid. Your first child and your only child, as far as you know, the only child you'll ever have. She'll have several more later, but she didn't know that. And you've raised that little baby from the, from the birth, and you have combed its hair, and you bathed it, and you took care of it when he was sick. And, and you fed him, and you taught him the Word of God, and you taught him about life, and you've loved him, and you've cuddled him. That's your baby boy. And now you bring him to the tabernacle, and you leave him. Why would you do that? And wouldn't most of us, if we were in her shoes, would be saying to ourselves, Whoa, woe is me. My heart is broken. I'll mourn and grieve and write a book about how sad I am because I had to leave my son behind. But we see none of that in Hannah. It's not that she doesn't care. It's not that she doesn't hurt. It's not that I, I, we're not told, but surely there are times she got very lonely for her son and she cried for her son. I, I don't have any doubt about that. She loved him intensely. But she trusted the Lord explicitly with the circumstances of her life. That song that Dan led us in a few moments ago that is brand new, that's only 400 years old, is, is a song that says that very same type of thing. Trusting the Lord with the hardest circumstances of life. And so she comes in verse 1 and she exalts the Lord. She lifts up the Lord. Why could she do that? Well, look at what she thinks about God. Follow along in a couple more verses. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is none, no one who is beside you. Nor are there any rock like our, our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And with him actions are weighted. Drop on down a little further to verse 10. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered Against them he will thunder in the heavens, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of, a, of his anointed. She is living amongst a godless people in a dark time of Israel, coming right out of the judges. And if you want to know how bad the judge period was, read the last two chapters in Judges, but make sure you don't do it on a full stomach. 
It's, it's ugly stuff. This is what she's, where she's at. But notice what she thinks about God. God is holy. God is unique. There's no one like him. God is the rock. God is omniscient, verse 3. Knows all things. In verse 10, he's all powerful. None can stand against him. He shatters everything that comes against him. That's the God she's leaving her son to. She's not giving her son to Eli and those stinky boys of his. She's giving, God, giving her son to God. And for God to deal with it as God wants to because she knows she can trust Almighty God. This is the, the mother we're talking about here. This is what the kind of person she is. We have one more episode that I'll point your attention to about Hannah. That's over in chapter 2, verse 18. And we'll just drop down through there. She, she came up every year. She, she left Samuel there, but she'd come see him every year at the yearly feast. Probably there for a week. The feast usually lasts about a week. And so I think, by the way, when she came there, she spent a lot of time with her boy. Uh, it doesn't tell us much about that, but I'm real sure she spent as much time as she could with him. And it was during those time, I believe, that she imparted in him the truth of God's word because nobody else was doing it. Nobody else taught the word of God at that time. Certainly not Eli. Certainly not his boys. Israel had lost most everything, but not Hannah. And I think during that time she spoke to her son and imparted in his life truth that's going to make a difference in him. But she comes up in verse 19 and said to him, his mother would make him a little robe. Doesn't that kind of just bring a tear to your eye? And bring it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. The women didn't have to come to these feasts. The men did, but she came. And I think she came for this reason. The Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went home. And the Lord did visit her. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Once again, I think this passage of Scripture is telling us You'll never understand Samuel till you understand his parents and his home life, until you understand his mother. When Samuel replaced Eli, at that point, the judges had failed, the priesthood had failed, the people of God, Israel, had failed, the army had failed, and they were in their lowest ebb in all the history of their times. They were at the spiritual bottom, perhaps, of all their history in many ways. Chapter 4, if you go over there with me, offers us three insights into the religious life of Israel at this time. Verse 3 is where we'll pour, pour our attention into it. Three insights into what this life was like in Israel at this time. Number one, the va their values have been diluted by the world their values have been diluted by the world. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, we don't have time to fill in all the story, but they had been defeated by the Philistines. And they cry out, Why? Why has God abandoned us? Why has God allowed us to be defeated? Well, they should have known why. Because God told them back in Deuteronomy chapter 28... That if you live like this, if you live this godless life, you will be cursed. You will be cursed. 
You will not be blessed and you will lose it all. He told them over and over in those chapters that that would happen. And now they're asking why? <laughs> you see, to them, they were as good as the nations around them, maybe better, but not to God. Their values have been diluted by the world. Secondly, we find that their religion had been mutilated into a superstition. We go on in the chapter here in that same verse. Let us take our, ourselves from Shiloh to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Hey, we got an idea. We're not going to re repent. We're not going to turn to God. Let's go get the Ark. It'll be our talisman. It'll be our magic charm. It was a superstitious view that this box without God would deliver them from their enemies. And so they, they do exactly that. Superstition, not, not true biblical faith in life. And then their spiritual passion had been confused into fleshly enthusiasm. They couldn't tell the difference, and our world is here today, between fleshly enthusiasm and godly passion. We see that in verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now think about that for a moment. They brought the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies, where it was supposed to stay, and these two godless priests brought it with them. Verse 5, And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the camp, and all Israel shouted with a great shout, so the earth resounded. When the Ark came in, they couldn't, uh, couldn't contain their enthusiasm. Their eyes were lifted to heaven. Their hands were up. They were shouting their heads off. They were, God had come among them. But God had not come among them. They were confusing this, this earthly and fleshly enthusiasm with passion for God. It wasn't the same. How can you tell the difference? How can you tell the difference between someone who got their hands up and their eyes up and, and shouting to the Lord, and, but there, there's nothing there with one who has something there? How can you tell the difference? Let me tell you. Because those who truly have the spiritual passion obey God. They repent of their sins. They humbly come before him. They say, the word says this and I will do it even if I don't want to do it. Even if I don't like doing it. Even if my culture says don't do it. I will obey God. That's spiritual passion. This is fleshly enthusiasm. And they, not, and they cannot tell the difference. Well, we have to march on here. Into this darkness, this ugliness, and this verse just shows us how ugly it was, steps up Samuel. And he's a man of strong faith. He's a man of great spiritual life and power and dignity. Chapter 12, coming close to the end of his life, well, we're told that, there, that no one could point a finger at Samuel and say, you've ever done anything corrupt or wrong or evil. What, who, could, who could say that? They could say to Samuel, he had always lived by his godly integrity. God will use Samuel to restore the, and stabilize the nation. He will use Samuel to ultimately anoint David, who would be the great godly king that will lead them forth in spiritual life and military victory. Chapter 7, verse 2. Israel had lost, I read, talked to you about the battle, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the camp did no good. Not only did they lose the battle, they lost the ark. They took the, the Philistines took the ark and kept it for a while. Didn't work out so well for them, if you, don't, if you want to read that story. And so they sent it back, 
When they sent it back, it, was, it stopped off at a house outside of Shiloh, not in the tabernacle, and it stayed there, we find in verse 2 of chapter 7, for 20 years. 20 more years of this spiritual darkness and destitution. 20 years. Nothing has improved at all. They're the same people they were. And then, in verse 3, stands up a real man. A godly man. I don't know if he had rippling muscles and all that kind of stuff or not. I don't know what, what he did for exercise program. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. But this is a real man. He stands up in the midst of a dark circumstance, a dark world, a people among a people that hate God, who want nothing to do with God, that don't understand God, that have lost any, any understanding of biblical truth for, for decades, maybe even centuries. And he stands up, and he, without flinching, in complete boldness, he says in verse 3, that there are three requirements if you're going to live for God. Three requirements. First of all, repentance. Then, I like that word, I circled that word in my Bible. It's all going to change here. Here's our hinge word. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you. Repentance. Repentance is turning around. He says, if you, if you want to come back to God, I'll lead you, but you're going to have to repent, and you're going to have to leave your deities behind, your gods behind. You mean I can't, I can't repent and just carry along my extra gods? As we'll find out later on, it still had some. And the Asherah were, were just immoral to the hilt gods that the, the people in that region worshipped. He says, if you're going to come to God, you don't come to God with your idols in, in tow. You don't come to God with a, with a U-Haul trailer behind you full of idols. You come to God with total and complete repentance. You're turning away from that. And although you and I don't have physical idols sitting around very often, we do have a lot of spiritual idols that could be hanging around. You don't repent to God and say, yeah, I'm going to come to the Lord, but I'm going to keep a few of these just in case. Repentance is a full-blown turning to God. I've bored you many times with telling you how often I've gotten lost in my travels and how often I have got confused. Matter of fact, somebody told me last week that there's been some study shows that if you use these uh, apps for navigation instead of real maps, that you'll get Alzheimer's sooner. <laughs> I don't remember who told me that. <laughs> but I did tell them Alzheimer's is coming. Because I love those, map, those apps. I, I can hardly get out of Springfield without one of those apps. So if I'm going to go down soon, I'm going to go down with my app in my hand. But nevertheless, I've gotten lost many times because I, don't, I can't tell directions. And I don't know much about where I'm going half the time. But I do know when I do get lost, eventually I just have to give up and turn around. Okay? These people are lost. They're going to have to turn around. No halfway turn. No slightly left turn, complete turnaround, the repentance. Secondly, his commitment. He says, you're going to lay aside these foreign gods among you and direct your heart to the Lord. Directing, directing your heart to the Lord. He's not calling for superficial change. 
He's calling for a full-blown turn to the Lord and directing your hearts, not just your actions, not just your body, your hearts to the Lord. Laying out your whole heart before Him. If you ever said, uh, you know, I'd give anything to play an instrument like some of these people up here do, or, or to play basketball like some people we might know do, no, you don't. Because that's what it costs to be really good at something. You have to give your all to it. And that's what he's calling on them to do here, to give their all to the Lord. And then that leads to a third thing here, a third requirement, and that's service. You see, true change of heart leads in true change of life. Never fool yourself. Don't pretend that you've got some spirituality that doesn't lead to biblical living. He says in verse 3, he goes on, and serve him alone. I circled the word alone in my Bible. And in verse 4, they did it. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashereth and served the Lord alone. There's no compromise there, folks. You either serve him with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. You don't serve him at all. When Jesus was calling forth disciples, he didn't say, you know, if you want to, you can take up your cross and follow me. You know, you don't really have to. You know, you, you can do something else. You can, you can go halfway. And that's what, that's what Jesus said. We serve him, we serve him alone. As we look through this passage of scripture, then we are going to have to move quickly and just look at the highlights. In verses 6 through 11, we find that shortly after this time, after this message, these people professed their sins. They sought, verse 6, in verse 8, they sought God. And in verse 9, Samuel prayed for them. And a prayer by a man like Samuel meant something. That's what James 5 tells us. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And then God routed the Philistines after all these years, after 20-some years of being under the thumb of, of the Philistines, God routes them. And then in verse 12, Samuel sets up a stone and gives it a name, Ebenezer. <laughs> Here's my verse, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Sheen and called it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means the stone of help. It's just a rock. It's nothing fat. The rock didn't rescue them. But the rock is the, the memorial, the, the monument. That every time they looked at it, they said, there's Ebenezer. It reminds us of the time the Lord rescued us when we were destitute. It reminds us of the help of God when we needed it. It's Ebenezer. Thus far the Lord has helped us. There's power in these monuments. Throughout the Old Testament, they're always setting up a monument for something to remind them of what God had done. Time and time and time again, monuments to remind them. This is one of the great monuments, the rock of, all, the rock of help, Ebenezer. I'm sad they took that verse, out, that verse of, out of the hymn book because today's idea is uh, if you don't know what a word means, if it's old-fashioned, just skip it. Or you could learn. What it means. Wouldn't that be better? Maybe not. Maybe I'm old fashioned. I don't know. Their power didn't lay in the rock. The power didn't lay in their swords. The power lay 
in the rock that that rock symbolized. And that's what they learned. In a little country cemetery in Indiana, in a corner near a woods that almost nobody knows about, is a tombstone. People pass it all the time. They don't think anything of it, just a small marker. But it's the marker that lays in front of the graves of my mom and dad. So once in a while when I'm back that way, I go over to see the marker. Now, they're not there. By God's grace, they're in heaven. They're with the Lord. They've been there for a long time now. But occasionally I go by that old cemetery and I look at that marker because it reminds me of people that loved me. It, it reminds me of people that raised me for, for Christ. It's a memorial. It serves a purpose. It reminds me of a father who didn't know how to express love in a normal way, but he did in other ways. He taught me to fish. He taught me to go to church. He taught me to live for God. He taught me how to play baseball. He spent time with me even though he couldn't tell me he loved me. But it also reminds me of my mother. It's Mother's Day, right? It reminds me of my mother who is much more gentle and much different. Many of you have heard my story of the past. I'll repeat it for those that haven't and for those that have heard it that you don't remember it. So, Kind of the testimony of my spiritual upbringing. My mother had a Hannah experience. She had been married 10 years and had no children. She thought she would never have kids. She came to the Lord and said, Lord, if, if, if you give me a child, I will raise him for Christ. I'll take him to church. I'll take him to church. That's all she knew because she wasn't a Christian. Well, ultimately, 10 years in, thereabouts, uh, I was born. And uh, when I, a little before I was five, we moved from Indianapolis to a little town outside. And by God's wonderful grace, just so happens. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how the Lord just so happens so often? Across the street was a godly couple who went to a little Baptist church out in the sticks, a little country church. And I remember one of the earliest memories of my life is following them to church one Sunday morning. And we were, none of us were saved. We went out to there. I was about four, almost five years old. We went out there and what, this is, this is almost, a, it's a primitive, almost antique type of situation. The church was there. It had no indoor plumbing, which meant they had an outhouse. But they had a he and a she, and that was beneficial. They had a pump, a hand pump right outside the thing. That's all the water they had. And they had four old mugs that you could drink from. Could you imagine you doing that? Most, most of you, I don't even want to talk about you. But here, and so that, that was my remembrance. But you know what I started remembering also? I ran into a people I didn't know existed. People that sang praises to God. People that opened up a book and preached from the book. People that took me aside as a little boy. And year after year, using old-fashioned flanograph, taught me the Bible well enough I could probably got, into, got through the first two years of, of Bible college without any help because they trained me in the Bible. I was trained by these people. They loved the Lord. I shudder to think what would have happened had my mother not kept her word. Uh, my mother did not rule the roost in our home. My dad did. But I think she insisted. I promised God, and we're going to church. 
So we went to church. By God's grace, it was a church that taught the gospel. And so I grew up in that environment. I remember vividly all these things. By God's grace, he brought all these people in my life and taught me the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, trained me in the word of God, raised me in these things, because my mother kept her word. My mom got saved maybe a year after we went there. I got saved a little later. And all those years, I was trained in those things. I remember, since we're talking about mothers, uh, the most sweetest memories I have of her are different than my dad. My dad and I went out to do manly things, you know, gut fish and stuff like that. Uh, my mom, much gentler, much more loving. My remembrance of her mostly, uh, largely, a big memory, is coming in on, as a little boy into the kitchen while she was cooking breakfast for, before we went to school or church. And I sat down on the register, the heat register, in the kitchen. And by the way, for a few of you might know, I still do that. And I'm still going to keep doing that as long as I can get back up. It's not much longer, but I'm going to do it for now. And so I sat on that register, and she talked to me. And mostly she listened to me and talked to me about the things that were important and things that weren't so important. But she talked to me about God because when my parents got saved, they didn't become scholars, but they were truly dedicated to Christ. Folks, I have been in the ministry January 1, I'm sorry, June 1, about a few weeks from now, for 50 years. I know you don't believe that because I look 45. <laughs> you know, I, so. Okay. In that half a century, it says, that sounds nastier, doesn't it? Half a century? Woo. In that half a century, I've watched kids grow up and come and go by the hundreds. Some of them have gone on to walk with Christ. Some have not. And as I look back on those years and as I observe, I want to say this. I want to say this with love and I want to say it with sincerity. That in my observation, we never know who God might raise up to walk with him. Because we do everything right as a parent doesn't mean our kids will walk with Christ. And by God's grace, sometimes kids that grow up in a family that doesn't love the Lord at all turn out walking with him for the rest of their lives. We, we can't predict God. But on a regular basis, on an observational basis, here's what I've seen. The children that grow up in our churches and go on to walk with Christ have had parents that are, and here's my word, intentional. If they didn't accidentally raise their kids for Christ, it wasn't an accident. They intentionally set out to raise them for the Lord Jesus. They taught them the word in the home. They brought them to church. They brought them to youth programs. They didn't allow other systems, other programs, sports and music or whatever, to take their kids away from, from the church and, and from the opportunities there. They intentionally desired before God to raise children to walk with Him. My parents did that. I hope you're doing that. And I hope today on Mother's Day, that if you're a mother who is not desiring to do that, and are not doing that, or a dad, that you will repent, that you will direct your heart to the Lord, and you'll change your behavior towards your children, and intentionally, seriously, raise them for the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be the greatest Mother Day that ever was?
Pray with me. Father, we thank you now for, for your word. We thank you for Samuel. We thank you for Hannah and, and, and her husband who intentionally chose to serve you and to raise her little boy for Christ. And because of that, he went on to be a powerful man of God. And Lord, we thank you for good parents. So many, so many people in this room, Lord, that I know personally love you with all their hearts and are doing all they can to serve you either with children in the home or not. And how I give you praise for such, so many people like that. Father, I pray right now, as we think of Mother's Day, that we think not only of the things that uh, we want to thank moms for, which are many, but also that uh, we will have godly mothers, godly parents, to raise their children for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.